Welcome to The Forest and the Trees, Global and Local Perspectives on the Environment, with your host, Melinda Tuhus. My guest this week is Christina C., one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion of New York City. You may have heard of Extinction Rebellion, or XR, from its creative nonviolent actions in London back in 2018, where climate activists glued their hands to the doors of banks and government offices to call for emergency action on the climate crisis. XR New York City was founded just a few weeks later. I ran into members of XR NYC flyering one day when I was in the city for something else, so they've been on my radar for a while. Their spring rebellion this year was April 13th through the 23rd, and I was there for two days of it. The first day I did support for an incredible action that involved three aerialists performing a beautiful piece at a park along the Hudson River. The next day, I was arrested with eight others as we blocked Wall Street by the Big Brass Bull, which is an amusing tourist attraction. I asked Christina about the history and priorities of XR New York City. My name is Christina, um, and I helped start XR New York City way back when, the end of 2018. And... One of the things I worked on um, is the climate emergency declaration uh, in New York City. So I was, was the political strategy coordinator for the first few years um, and helped shepherd that through. So that was a big win for us within the first, I guess, year of XR. So um, and now I still do, still do some political strategy stuff, but I'm also focused on media and you know, messaging aspects of communicating the climate crisis, climate and ecological crisis. Okay, great. So I'm curious, we got, we have a, a, in New Haven, we have a climate emergency declaration and absolutely nothing happened for about two years. And now there's a committee and a commission or something, and I don't know what they're doing. What, did anything change in New York after you got that? Um, It was, I think the very next day, it was actually cited um, in people's testimony, right, for other environmental issues that were coming up. So, you know, one thing that we aimed for um, was having it on the books as the the city acknowledging the climate and ecological crisis. They mentioned the six mass extinction in it. They mentioned climate justice, justice issues, you know, and so it's a, it was a very kind of explicit declaration so for us it was that was like one of the first steps um and obviously there's more work to be done but being able to um cite that you know within future lawmaking and that kind of stuff does make a difference so i think part of it is that you know covid happened (laughs) fairly you know not very soon after that but um where all the the focus got shifted to COVID. So I think what we're seeing now within the last few months um, is kind of a renaissance, so to speak, around the climate emergency movement. Um, So I do expect things to happen and to move forward in that respect. Um, But I think one big thing that did happen was that there was many other cities and municipalities that took the New York City Declaration and use that as a basis for their own locations, which I think is great, you know? So it was 
apart from the media attention that it got also other places doing that same thing um at least it puts it on the books as it being an issue whereas politicians can't ignore it anymore so how uh, what is your background were you involved in other climate related stuff before you co-founded uh XR and I guess the companion question is why did you see the need for another organization? Sure, my background is actually in the film and entertainment business. Um, I do a lot of project management and design. Um, and I'd never really been involved in activism before. Um, and there was just something about watching Extinction Rebellion in London um, within the first few days when it launched there that just resonated with me. Um, whereas things like petitioning and, you know, talking to elected officials never had really that, that same um, feeling to me. So that was really a key part. And once I saw it happening in the UK, um, that's when I started looking around for, is this happening in other places? Um, and then things slowly started getting up actually it was fairly quickly um you know within a few weeks we started in new york city so my involvement was with a bunch of other people who we just all happened to come together at the same time um seeing what was happening in the uk um and you know from there it kind of you know was messy and all sorts of things that happen when you're working with complete strangers basically um but that's when we started figuring out, you know, how do you make decisions? What are, how does this translate to the US? Um, that type of thing. So I'm really interested in that. Um, how, I mean, and I think that principles of XR US are a little different than, than the ones from, from England. Um, can you talk about what, you know, just sort of summarize what the principles are and what's different from, you know, the one that you saw happening first in, in London? Yeah, I would say it's the demands that are slightly different here. Um, and it's really only that we added a fourth demand in the U.S. that acknowledges um, climate justice issues and wording around a just transition. Um, and that, you know, we especially in New York City, really do focus on both the e ecological side of it and the, you know, um, historically marginalized communities who've been, you know, systemically screwed over by, by many aspects. Um, so that was, that was basically the biggest kind of thing that we added to XR in the U.S. But I would say that you know, a lot of it did translate well, and it was very thought out and very strategic um, what they designed in the UK. Um, and just to run through the demands, the first demand is to tell the truth. Um, so really what we were seeing three and four years ago, no one was using the words climate emergency, climate crisis, ecological crisis. So part of the goal was to shift into this, you know, communication of the urgency of the situation, which, you know, I think really has, um, has happened. We have been seeing much more different words and phrases used around it, obviously not as much as we need, but the second demand is 
getting to net zero by 2025, um, which everyone says, oh my God, there's no way we can do that. But actually what the science is saying is that we actually do need to do that. Um, and that's becoming clearer and clearer every day with every report that comes out that 2050 is basically out of, you know, it's it's obscene of a, of a year to think about um, related to all of these issues that are already happening. Um, the third demand is around citizens assemblies. And this is um, something that has been used in Europe. There's been climate assemblies that have happened in the UK, in France, in Belgium. And, you know, this is a way where people's voices are heard and it also deals with political deadlock. And I think we absolutely have that issue in this country um, where we cannot pass any legislation, um, let alone climate and ecological emergency um, policy without, you know, varied interest in, you know, between lobbyists and elected officials and corporations all having their say where it really feels like everyday people are being left out of the conversation, even though they want these things to, to move forward. Um, and then the fourth demand is around climate and ecological justice. And when we talk about tr just transition, that means everything from making it much safer, you know, in our own neighborhoods um, from pollution and all of these other issues. But also when we talk about what does it mean for oil workers who, if we're, if we're transitioning off of oil, they also need to be acknowledged and that needs to be thought through as well, whether that's retraining or those types of things. Um, and that's where a citizens assembly would be helpful in coming through and, you know, um, discussing those issues. You're listening to my interview with Christina C., co-founder of Extinction Rebellion NYC. Okay, thanks for laying those out. Um, I, I wanted to go back to a couple of things that you mentioned. Um, uh, well, first of all, I thought what the IPCC is saying is that we have to reduce our, our emissions um, either 45 or 50%, I've read both, by 2030. That's, that's, I thought, what the science says. So that's when you say get completely off by 2025, I'm not sure that's what the science says. And it does seem that's only three years from now. <laughs> So that does seem kind of unrealistic. I don't know. Um. <laughs> yeah, so there was actually something that came out recently um, where the scientists and people who had written the IPCC reports pointed out that the journalists who have been writing about the IPCC reports actually misjudged what they were saying and that by 2025, our emissions totally have to be reduced. I mean, the other issue is, you know, we both know the IPCC is an incredibly conservative organization because they have to have unanimity, which is pretty amazing. Um, so I'm sure there are many people in it, like scientists who contribute to it, who would like to phrase things very differently, but you know, the consensus is that it's by 2030, like 50%. And there was actually last summer, I think XR Spain um, leaked the IPCC report as it was written by the scientists. And that was before it was, you know, negotiated and discussed within all of the member nations. Um, so you can actually see the key differences between the two where, you know, this is what the scientists are saying, and this is where 
the unanimity that you're talking about comes into play. But I think part of it is really this issue around moving 2050 up, right? Because what we're seeing right now, we're already at 1.2 degrees Celsius, right, as of now. And what the um, Paris Climate Agreement was talking about was 1.5, right? 1.5 is this number that to basically stop, you know, climate catastrophe from happening, we need to stay under 1.5. Um, and so what we're seeing is that, you know, there's more and more scientists talking about how that number needs to be moved up much further, like 2030 for zero emission. So I think that's really what our goal is, is to just continue moving up the year in which this becomes an acceptable number. Actually, I found the article. A key finding in the latest IPCC climate report has been widely misinterpreted, according to scientists involved in the study. In the document, researchers wrote that greenhouse gases are projected, projected to peak at the latest before 2025. This implies that carbon could increase for another three years and the world could still avoid dangerous warming. But scientists say that's incorrect and that emissions need to fall immediately. Okay. And the other thing I wanted to ask about is, is the, the change in the language, you know, to, to talk about emergency and crisis and catastrophe and chaos. Those are words that, you know, are being used much more now and, and, it, and they're all true. But I, I actually just watched a webinar with a guy who's head of Project Drawdown. Are you familiar with that? Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, a hundred ideas that could reduce greenhouse gas emissions and keep the planet safe for life. And it was really interesting. And I was just thinking about what, what works because his, his view is not to talk about emergency and chaos and catastrophe and crisis, but to talk about opportunities and solutions in such a way that people feel empowered and positive and hopeful rather than maybe shutting people down. And, you know, I, I use the, you know, Armageddon language all the time. <laughs> But I, I, I don't know, it just really got me thinking, wondering what really is most effective. What, what do you, I just like your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it's a balance between the two because um, we don't want to think that we have no power to do anything. Um, but I think we also need to be realistic. And the realistic part is, is absolutely key, right? Um, and that's the part that keeps getting you know, pushed back by media and corporations and people who have varied, varied interests in, in this. And so one key part of XR is around climate grief, right? So there's a lot of people who come into XR feeling like, you know, despair or feeling like something's happening in the world and they may, may or may not be able to put their finger on it. But that's a key aspect um, we feel about being able to do these things and talk about these things in a realistic manner while both ex acknowledging that there are thousands and thousands of species already going extinct, right? And we're slated to, you know, basically have almost up to 1 million species go extinct. So, you know, that's a key element of it. I think one other thing is talking about these things in like this huge way of catastrophe and emergency and that kind of thing, it doesn't necessarily resonate with people at a personal level, right? 
like you can't necessarily grasp what that means when these floods are happening and um, extreme weather is happening in other parts of the world. We have to be realistic and have courage to acknowledge these issues are really happening um, and not just say, okay, someone will come up with an answer. I think we can safely say after witnessing COVID that no one is coming to save us on an issue this big. Even when we all come together and try to address an issue like COVID, it was messy and it didn't necessarily work right. So we need to be kind of making sure we're addressing these issues before it gets very bad. Right. Yeah, that's so true. So when I, my exposure to XR is fairly limited. Um, I, I have uh, some good friends in Philly and Wilmington, Delaware, and I, I did some stuff with them last, uh, last year. But if I were, and then, you know, I went to the training with, with you guys, and then I came back for the week, you know, the days that I was on the actions. But if I were going to describe XR to somebody who didn't know about it, you know, and I could talk about the principles and the demands, but to me, the things that really make it stand out is the unbelievable creativity, the art and, and other aspects of creativity and, you know, the commitment to nonviolent direct action, which is not true of many groups, most groups, and um, just the personal support. And I guess that maybe is related to what you're talking about, about climate grief, like really supporting people. Would you agree with that or what, what, how would you, uh, you know, lay it out and what's your elevator speech, I guess, and, you know, for people? Sure. Um, at its core, Extinction Rebellion uses nonviolent civil disobedience to instigate political and social change, which has a long, rich history in the U.S. Um, the momentum of XR is partially due to the fact that we work to cross ideological divisional lines, um, climate change is not a right versus left issue. It's going to affect everyone eventually and it's not going to be gentle. Um, and then the, the other part of it, as I talked about before, is um, around climate and eco grief. So part of that is also this creativity, right? How do you um, move from despair into action, right? So processing that, those feelings and taking action, whether it's making art, taking part in an action, doing outreach, you know, there's about 95% of the work that Extinction Rebellion does is not um, in civil disobedience. It's all of the planning and mobilization and um, design and creativity that is a huge part of it. Right. Yeah. Well, even if you want to get to the NVDA, it's, there's a lot of, you know, planning that goes into it before you step into the street and we'll do whatever. You know, there's so many climate organizations. Like I've thought of starting an XR chapter in Connecticut, but I, there's so many groups already <laughs> that, and, and maybe it, it would, maybe it would fill a niche that doesn't exist now, but where do you see XR in, in the galaxy of, of environmental and climate organizations, either in New York or, or, or broadly around the country? The yeah, I, I think uh, you can look at it like an ecology of the climate and ecological emergency movement. Um, some organizations focus on, you know, conservation or biodiversity, others focus on climate justice. Um, and many other issues that are intertwined into this. 
So XR, really our goal is to raise the awareness level and have citizens assemblies to address these issues because that aspect of community coming together that's representative of the larger location um, is we feel absolutely key to both moving these issues much further um, and also it's a way to not have people feel like you know these new ideas or ways are being shoved down their throats right I think that's a big part of it like we definitely need to change things and people are you know not, not necessarily on board with changes like that happening whether it's you know electric cars or you know a multitude of other things um so i think that's why xr works um because we don't get stuck in the conversation about nuclear versus non-nuclear right we are talking about having citizens assemblies so that that community can decide if you know nuclear should be what you know is shifted to as for example so i think xr does play a huge role i think we have successfully moved the needle on a lot of things um and in many ways i feel like we've normalized nonviolent civil disobedience um and this is not something new right this has been done throughout history from the suffragettes civil rights movement act up um in the 80s and 90s around the aids crisis so we're not doing anything new um we're just using that tool uh, within the wider toolbox to bring these issues more to the forefront of, you know, media and culture in general. You're hearing Christina C., co-founder of Extinction Rebellion in New York City. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's, I, well, I like it. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I, let's see. Oh, just, yeah, before we get off, what was the name of this 10-day period? What did you guys call it? Uh, I think it was the Spring Rebellion. Right, okay. Spring, and, Spring and Rebellion. Do you have, how often do you have rebellions? Um, we had been doing them, like, in the spring and in the fall um, with various actions happening in between. Mm -hmm. um, and they've been very successful. I think this rebellion, we, you know, We've gotten a lot of um, mainstream coverage. There's a great article written about us in New York Magazine. WNYC had us on to talk um, on the Brian Lair show. So I think there's, you know, there's a, a lot more interest happening. And I think people are, for various reasons, willing to go back out on the streets and take part in civil disobedience, nonviolent civil disobedience, because that's a key part of this. So the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, came out when the last IPCC report um, came out and he said, climate activists are sometimes depicted as dangerous radicals, but the truly dangerous radicals are the countries that are increasing production of fossil fuels. Investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure is moral and economic madness. So I think we can see how much things have shifted in the last few years, you know, just in in that one statement and he's very quotable he said a lot of really great things mm -hmm. um do you know how many people were arrested in all the different actions uh i think it was about 72 
Okay. Um, and that was along the whole rebellion, yeah. but yeah. obviously there was a lot more. Do you want to talk about like what NVDA is a bit? Yeah, well, go ahead. Yeah, just say okay. what, 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 uh, what um, XR means by it. Sure. Um, Nonviolent civil disobedience is a form of protest, um, and that's always been a cornerstone of democracy. And it's protected under the First Amendment, and it makes sure that everyday voice, everyday people's voices can be heard. Um, and it is used typically, and it becomes necessary when all other methods, such as petitioning and lobbying, seem to fall on deaf ears. It can help bring attention to issues that are otherwise being ignored. The suffragettes used it to demand women the right to equality and the vote. And it was used during the civil rights movement and during the AIDS crisis by the Boston Tea Party, um, an instigation of the American Revolution was also an act of civil disobedience. So examples of nonviolent civil disobedience can be anything from hunger strikes to blocking roads, taking a knee, any, any of these things. Yeah, great. Thanks for uh, suggesting that. The only other thing, question I had is, um, the, some of the groups I'm working with in Connecticut are really, you know, struggling to. I mean, we say we're anti-racist, and you know, yeah, we say we're intersectional. But the climate, the different aspects of the climate movement, the different organizations are still um, overwhelmingly white. Um, except for some that are pretty much exclusively people of color. And there's a little bit of overlap, but we feel like that's something that it's really has to change. And we're trying to, you know, really focus on it more and be thoughtful and, you know, learn, learn what we need to do to change things. What, I mean, all I know is from the two actions I was at, they were uh, not exclusively, but certainly mostly white. Um, do you, is that an issue for XR New York or do you, maybe I only saw a little piece of it and it, maybe it's very intersectional and interracial and I just didn't see that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's something that is talked about a lot. Um, and there are many people of color um, at this point taking part in XR. Um, and also, one thing we've done from the beginning is highlighting um, these issues that are happening globally, right? So we are bringing the Global South issues to a much more local platform. So we've also been working with um, a variety of communities within New York. So at one point we did an action, um, an event with the Bangladesh community um, because there was, there, there, I believe there was like some extreme weather event that, you know, decimated um, an area of Bangladesh. And so, you know, we're constantly working to bring these issues that are happening around the world much more um, closer to, you know, people within New York City as well and within the wider U.S., so I think it's it's something that, you know, is we're always working on. Um, and our goal of a citizens assembly is something that would be representative, right, of the population as as a whole. So that really takes into account um, these aspects as well, right? So 
everyone is given that voice and not just the people in, in Extinction Rebellion. At this point in the interview, we had some technical difficulties, so I had to cut it a little short, but I think you get the gist of what Extinction Rebellion is all about. You've been listening to The Forest and the Trees, global and local perspectives on the environment, with your host, Melinda Tuhus. Tune in on the second Saturday of every month at 9.30 a.m. here on WPKN 89.5 FM for more environmental news you can use.